thank you for that. Handbell Choir and, and of course Rod, thank you for the prayer of thanksgiving. Let's pray together before we jump into the sermon this morning. Lord, we are grateful for your word and you have chosen to make yourself known therein. So we pray that you would give us attentive minds and attentive hearts, uh, that our great longing would be to hear from you and to know you through that word. And I pray that that wouldn't be just today, but it would be an ongoing activity in our church and in our personal lives and in our family lives. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, we're in between series right now. Uh, we just finished our series in Haggai. So what I want to do today is I want to do a standalone sermon. But my plan for situations like this is to have an ongoing series uh, because it makes things much easier to move systematically through Scripture. It makes it easier so I'm not scrambling looking for a text at the beginning of the week. And, of course, it's always a... Um, helpful thing to the congregation because it means I don't get to pick text for my hobby horses. So for, for this standalone series, what, what I'm planning to do is to preach through the Psalter. And if that's a new word for you, I'm just referring to the Psalms, the 150 uh, Psalms that we have in our Bibles. And the reason I want to do that is because they are some of the richest pieces of Scripture. They bear incredible uh, fruit upon reflection, and the Psalms have been the hymn book or the song book of the people of God since their very inception. John Calvin famously referred to them as the anatomy of the soul, saying that you can find every aspect of what it means to be human in the Psalms. So it's important for us to spend our time there in the Psalms. Furthermore, they are thoroughly, if not overtly, Messianic, And what I mean by this is they point forward. They are shadows of Christ. In the Psalms, we both see Christ and his coming actions depicted, but we also hear his voice. So when you read a psalm, it's very helpful to think of it as though you're hearing the voice of Christ. And of course, we see the role of the psalms in the life of Jesus. He was so saturated in the words of the Psalter that he called out in his greatest moment of anguish from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we often look at that and we think, oh, Jesus is losing his faith. But when we are so saturated in the Psalter as he was, we understand that the reason he's citing that psalm in particular is not an expression of doubt, but it is, it is an expression of deep confidence in God despite the circumstances. And see, that is what a life saturated in Scripture looks like, one that is constantly speaking the language of the Scriptures. Now, psalm 1 calls us to do just that, to be saturated in Scripture. And the psalm depicts two ways for us. You will see it there at the very end of the psalm in verse 6, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the two ways are first, the way of the righteous, and then number two, the way of the wicked. Both of these terms, the righteous and the wicked, are repeated throughout the psalm. 
So again and again you hear this repetition. The psalm tells us that the difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked lies in the righteous person's saturation in God's word. That's the difference. Has the person been saturated in the word of God? Now, Psalm 1 is particularly important not only for understanding the whole Psalter, but also for the entire Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. Some scholars think Psalm 1 is in fact more of a preamble to the book of the Psalms, that it's not really a psalm as such, but it's an entry point or an introduction, a preface to the entire Psalter. And we don't have to go into a deep dive into that right now, I just kind of want to lay that out there for you. But what I want you to notice before we begin is that Psalm 1 presents a whole different way of looking at things, a whole way of viewing the world, what we would call a world view. The person who sees life through the filter of Scripture is blessed. That is what Psalm 1 tells us. So Psalm 1 invites us to hear the words of the other 149 Psalms. It invites us to attend to the entire Old Testament. It invites us to attend to all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation to hear these words and to be saturated in these words. The other night after we had finished giving the kids a bath, we left the water in there, which is something parents should never do, but we did. And so several kids were running around with their towels on as it's often a scramble to get them to brush teeth. And they're running, and Ansley, our middle child, three years old, is running back with this hooded towel to the bathtub, and next thing we know, diving headfirst into the bathtub with the towel and everything. Now you can imagine what that scene looked like. Of course, it was chaos, but the towel itself was soaked. We had this ringing, wet, frozen, we call it frozen the movie, right? Frozen towel. And then we had to squeegee out and then hang up to dry for an entire evening. And that's a picture of being saturated in something. When someone is saturated in Scripture, it's the very same thing. The words and wisdom of Scripture drip out of them, and when pressure is applied, it begins to pour out. It's exactly what we see in Jesus' life, is it not? We see and hear the words of Scripture and the wisdom of Scripture, for He is the very Word of God. We see it in His life, in all of His teaching. He teaches as one with authority, as one who understands, as one who has communicated the very words of God to us. But when pressure is applied to His life, we see the Scripture flooding out of Him, as we do on the cross. And so that is the picture. Let's take a look at the passage together. It's a short passage, so we'll move rather quickly. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The very first thing to notice is this psalm is what we would call a beatitude. Blessed. That's what a beatitude is. It's Latin for blessed. So blessed, or some translations have happy, which is a, a bit loose, but the idea is that this person has God's peace and fulfillment about them. So blessed is this person, and then we're told, who does not walk, who does not stand, and who does not sit with 
the wicked. Notice there is something like a progressive action going on here. Scholars have noticed this progressive action from walking to standing to sitting. So it tells us who is blessed. First, by stating the action to avoid. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And that phrase, counsel of the wicked, is worth noting because we'll come back to it in verse 6. There's a contrast with the congregation of the righteous. There's just one Hebrew letter different. So the Hebrew actually tips us off there that we want to hear those words together. The counsel of the wicked and the congregation of the righteous from verse 6. Some commentators have also suggested that this is a movement, this progressive movement, from thinking to behaving to belonging. And perhaps that's there. But notice also where they end up. They end up sitting. Sitting in the seat of the scoffers or dwelling in the dwelling place of the scoffers is another acceptable rendering of the original here. That's their final position, and I want you to just hang on to that because we'll once again come back to that as we near the end of the psalm. In any case, the blessed person avoids the company, the influence, and the lifestyle of the wicked. In other words, there is a way of seeing the world and viewing the world and and approaching the world that stands in contradiction to the way God has told us we ought to see the world and view the world and think about the world. That's the contrast. So, don't follow the way of the wicked, but instead follow Scripture, as we'll see in a minute. Now, the wicked, as I've said, are repeated throughout this psalm. And as we learn from this psalm and Psalm 2, the wicked are those who reject the word of God and live in open rebellion to God. We'll come back to Psalm 2 in just a moment, but for now let's go to verse 2. There's a contrast here. Blessed is the person who does not do these things, but then we're told what sort of person is blessed. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law... He meditates day and night. So this verse is the central thrust of the entire psalm. So we need to take our time here. First, let's talk about this word translated law. The Hebrew word is Torah, which you may have heard before, at least if you've been around the church. We often talk about Torah at some point. In particular... This word, Torah, can refer exclusively or particularly, I should say, particularly to the first five books of our Old Testament, to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's probably not the sense here. It can also have a more specific sense as in a law, like a legal regulation, or a broad broad collection of legal regulations. Even that doesn't seem to be the sense here. There are other words that would better convey that. The broadest sense we find in Scripture, and the one that seems to be the case here, is a word that we might use as instruction. In other words, hear the instruction of the Lord. See, we're not just talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy. We're not just talking about the Psalms. But we're talking about the entire collection of God's instruction. So in that sense, all of Scripture is Torah or law or instruction. Then we have these two parallel lines. His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's line one. And then line two. And on his law, 
he meditates day and night. And again, on his instruction, we might say. say. So, Scripture is often described with metaphors like honey and sweetness, something akin to dessert. In fact, I might ask you, have you ever delighted over a dessert? I was reflecting on this this morning. There are a couple of ways to delight over a dessert, right? There's big spoon approach and there's small spoon approach. So big spoon is I'm going to eat this dessert in three bites because I am delighting in it that much. And then there's small spoon approach. I'm going to find the teeniest spoon. We have children's spoons in our house for this purpose. We get the children's spoon and take little morsel bites to savor it and to allow ourselves to delight in it, to find joy and happiness in it. That is what this means. That's what this metaphor is. The blessed person has such a delight in God's Word. It implies a desire to spend time with it, to savor it, to devote attention to it, to find joy and happiness in it. But I'm afraid the reality is, for for all of us, preachers and lay people alike, that often we treat Scripture as a duty and a drudgery, as vegetables rather than desserts. Then there's the second half. Blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. Now, the idea of meditating on the instruction of the Lord is an important instruction for us as we think about Scripture, but I'm not sure meditate is the best English word to convey the translation here, and I'm certainly not sure it's the best English word for us today. Uh, The sense of the word, at least in the original, seems to come much closer to this study or paying careful attention to or thinking about. Okay, in fact, I can show you that. If you have a Bible, look at Psalm 2, verse 1. And by the way, Psalm 1 and 2 are closely linked. Why do the nations rage and the people's Plot. That's the same word translated meditate here in Psalm 1, verse 2. So plot, the ideas they're, they're giving attention to, they're devising a plan, they're paying careful attention to plot. So there's this connection. The idea then seems to be giving ourselves to the word of God. And we'll have to leave the relationship between those two psalms also for another day. Meditation is also a loaded term in 2021. The unfortunate problem with the word meditate is we tend to think almost exclusively in terms of uh, Buddhist meditation, like sitting silently and emptying our heads. But the idea here is closer to reading carefully and closely, perhaps even muttering the words slowly on our lips so that there is a sort of buzzing sound coming from them. Something like, as we're reading, blessed is the man who walks not slowly, you see, savoring each word as we go along. The difference between our meditation here that we're talking about and, say, Eastern meditation from something like the Buddhist world is we are aiming for the word of God to permeate who we are. To be saturated by the Word of God. We're not trying to empty ourselves or disassociate. We are simply trying to attach ourselves to God and to His words in an even deeper fashion. 
And all of this, in fact, is quite an appropriate practice. Don't just read Scripture silently as you might read a novel. Instead, read it slowly, forming each word on your lips and perhaps even whispering it as you read. Now, I've said something about this cultural moment. Let me return to that just for a moment. Again, I think all of this is important because our cultural moment, in our cultural moment, meditation in the Buddhist style has taken our culture by storm. Bestseller lists are full of these books. I've got a number of them in my office. I've read through a number of them. Sometimes it often goes by the terminology of mindfulness. I can think of one popular bestseller right now that on the subtitle it is Mindfulness Meditation. But all of that form of meditation is different than what we're talking about here because it has different aims and goals from what we're talking about in Psalm 1. That type of meditation is meant to disassociate. But this type of meditation is again to saturate us in the words of God. This psalm is calling us to fix our attention on the word of God. So to be sure, here's what I'm saying. As Christians, we have a practice of meditation that we can cling to and that we can use. But we don't need to go outside and look for it in other places. What we have is a Christian tradition where we can be saturated and rooted in the Word of God. Now, I'll tell you about the benefits of that in just a minute. But all of this careful attention and study of Scripture forms a biblical tapestry. So, from Genesis to Revelation, we see this tapestry. In fact, the same command here to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night is found in Joshua 1.8. Right after Joshua is commissioned to take up the leadership of Moses. And it's important because Moses had told right before his leadership ended that one day someone like him, but greater than him, would come to lead the people of Israel and he would lead them with the very words of God and the people should hear his words and be obedient to them. But that person is not Joshua. And then later in the Hebrew Bible, we have Malachi, which ends our Old Testament, Malachi ends with the same expectation of someone who would speak the words of God. In the Hebrew Bible order, Malachi is immediately followed by Psalm 1. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why would that be? Because it's forming this tapestry to say we're still expecting and looking for the one, the prophet like Moses, who will come and lead us and give us the very word of God. And in the meantime, while we wait, we are to be diligent in studying and saturating and meditating on the word of God, the instruction of the Lord. One scholar summarizes, the reader is to wait on the messianic future by meditating on scripture day and night. Now, of course, we are on the other side of that, are we not? Right? We've seen it. We are post what Christ has accomplished. We know who the greater prophet is. The prophet, like Moses, has come. His name is Jesus. He is the very word of God. And what are we told? That we should listen to him. The voice from heaven on the mountain of transfiguration breaks through and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. We're told that he has the words of life, words that can quench our thirst, that his teaching leads to righteousness. 
And here we have the gospel as well. Because who of us can truly say that we have meditated on the law of the Lord day and night? Who of us can say that we are the person in this psalm, blessed by God because we have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers? Who of us can truly say we have taken complete and utter delight in the law of the Lord? None of us, except there is one. His name is Christ. There is one who is so perfectly fixated on the Word of God, so thoroughly saturated in it, that he had the authority to instruct on its actual meaning, as he does, for example, in Matthew 5. It was Christ, I remind you again, who cried out with the words of the psalmist on the cross. And it is Christ alone who can say he perfectly saturated himself in the word of God day and night. He alone can claim the benefits of the psalm. He alone is the one who can say these benefits belong to me. But by listening to him. And being united to him. We are caught up in the psalm. We are caught up in the blessing. That's what it means to be a co-heir with Christ. Where he is blessed. We too are blessed. We can follow in his steps and enjoy his benefits. So let me tie this together before moving on. First, we are to meditate on Scripture, to be saturated in Scripture. Second, Jesus and his work on the cross is the key to understanding Scripture. So we even read Psalm 1 in light of Jesus. Therefore, conclusion, we carefully study and saturate ourselves in Scripture, but we always do so by reading it through the lens of Christ. Now notice what this psalm teaches. It teaches that the way we view the world, the way we think about the world, shapes our life. Thinking shapes our life. The influence of Scripture will shape how we live. Saturating ourselves in Scripture directly impacts the results of our life. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does... He prospers. So here we have an image and a comparison. The person who is saturated in Scripture is like a healthy, well-rooted tree. This is the fruit of biblical meditation. You'll hear lots today about the benefits of mindfulness and meditation. In fact, there are books written even by atheists who would say there are scientific benefits to this sort of Buddhist meditation. But here Scripture is telling us Your form of meditating on the Word of God, of saturating yourself in the Word of God, are benefits. There are benefits for you. Here are the benefits of carefully giving ourselves to Scripture. And the primary benefit that emerges is stability. Stability in a chaotic word. We all know that mental health is at a crisis point around the world. Anxiety, depression, fear are causing people to become unhinged. We just had a gas crisis for all of three days and people became unglued. Do you see the people filling up plastic bags with gasoline? That's a sign that you've lost your mind. (laughs) It's not safe. Is there any way to be stable in this world? At this point we're wondering, no, I don't think so. Of course the mindfulness teachers have come along and said, yeah, you, you, you can. You just have to disassociate. But Scripture is coming along and saying, no, no, there is a way to be rooted like a tree. 
And that first begins by looking to Christ, attending to His words. But of course, the psalm is instructing us. Christians in the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection often faced sporadic and sometimes severe persecution. There were several severe bouts of persecution during that first 300 years. In the Roman Empire, though, much like our own culture, death was feared. Death was something everyone was afraid of. Romans built their graveyards underground. Why? So they didn't have to go there. They're out of sight. We call these catacombs. Romans wouldn't go down there. Instead, they, they would send slaves down there. And Christians soon found that it was safe for them to head down there and meet without opposition. And this wasn't a concern for Christians. Why? Because Christ had conquered death. Christians also began to bury their dead ones there. And on those tombs, they would sometimes draw symbols. They would sometimes write notations. This person was a believer in the Trinity. Or they would write these symbols. And one of the earliest symbols that we find in those catacombs was the symbol of an anchor. An anchor. This psalm reminds us that there is an anchor in an unstable world. It reminds us first that our security is in Christ, the Blessed One who died with the very words of the psalm on His lips. And it reminds us that there is an anchor in attending to the Word of God. That there is a refuge. The entire Psalter reminds us that God is our refuge, our help in times of trouble, our anchor, our fortress, our rock. Contrast that with the wicked here in verse 4. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now notice how abrupt verse 4 is. We have this lengthy verse 3 explanation of the benefits of being saturated in the Word of God, and then a simple line in verse 4, not so the wicked. The wicked are not so. But instead, they are like chaff that the wind simply drives away. The short description of the wicked. Those who have no interest in the Word of God as made clear to us in Christ are transient. They are dust in the wind passing by. And that's all of our lives apart from an anchor. Verse 5 draws the conclusion. Therefore. That's the conclusion. Therefore. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Remember what the wicked were doing in verse 1. They had finally taken their seat. Well, they will not be able to stand in the judgment. And remember, we're warned about the counsel of the wicked there in verse 1. But here we're told that this group, these sinners, will not join the congregation of the righteous. Now remember, all of this is rooted in what Christ has done. So I don't want to be misleading in any way. All of this has to do with hearing the words of Christ and responding to the words of Christ. So when we talk about wicked or sinners, we're not talking about moralism. Please don't take it that way. Please don't somehow construe this to be like, if I follow the Ten Commandments, I'm good to go. Because what the Ten Commandments do and what Jesus tells us is that every single one of us will be absolutely crushed by them. So that's what they're for. The law will always condemn but the gospel is what gives us the freedom here to say, I can be part of the congregation of the righteous. Not because I've done anything worthy of being part of that congregation, but because Christ did. He meditated on the scripture day and night. He was the one who remained faithful even unto death. 
even death on a cross. All of this is, of course, rooted in the relationship God has with his people. God knows who are his. He is faithful to those who are his. He has an intimate relationship with them. Verse 6, for or because the Lord knows. Often in scripture, know has the sense of intimacy. I think that's true here as well. It's a broad term, not a really specific term, so we don't want to press it too hard, but it does often have this sense of intimacy. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the final contrast. There are two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Jesus teaches the same thing in Matthew 7 when he says there is a narrow road and there is a broad road or there is a narrow gate and a broad gate. And he urges us to make every effort to take the narrow gate. And how do we do that according to Matthew 7? Well, he he concludes as he goes down and he tells another story. He says there's two men. They build their houses. One builds their house on sand. One builds it on a rock. And he compares these men. He says one is stable. Which one's stable? Not the sand. The rock. And he says the one who builds his house on the sand is like the one who hears these words of mine but does not do them. But the one who builds his house on the rock is like the one who hears these words of mine and does them. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one who meditates on it day and night. So to be saturated in Scripture. This is the way to stability. This is the way to be anchored. We are to attend to the teachings of Jesus, the one who has given us the key to understanding all of Scripture, the prophet greater than Moses, the king greater than David, the priest greater than Aaron or Melchizedek, the one who is, according to John 1.1, the very word of God. How can we give ourselves to these things? Let me give you a few thoughts. Just a couple of quick comments. There are endless ways to explore. Christian tradition is rich with practices and ways of approaching Scripture. And those are things we can talk about. Those are things you can talk about with each other in your Bible study time, in your small group settings, whatever that may be, in your friendships, in your families, and you should explore these ways. But let me just speak to first congregational practice and then individual practice. First, congregational practice. How often have you been to a church service where very little time is given to Scripture? Can't you see? I know. Raise hand. Have you ever been to one of those? Okay, like three of you. Great. I've been to a lot of them, unfortunately. So I've picked bad churches, apparently. Often in the Baptist world, often in the Baptist world, what we see is this tendency to sort of read a few verses of Scripture. And what's ironic about that is we are the people who claim to be people of the book. If you go back to our heritage, we're the ones who are willing to die over an issue of believer's baptism. Right? Because we think Scripture teaches it and we take Scripture that seriously. We're the ones who carry the Reformation out to its logical consequences up back to the sources. We'll, we'll question everything because Scripture is the ultimate authority. And yet in a Baptist church, it's quite often that we may hear no more than two, three, four verses of Scripture. Am I right? And then we'll pick on our Catholic brothers and sisters, and yet their services are saturated in Scripture. 
or our Episcopalian brothers and sisters who are, again, saturated in Scripture, who walk circles around us when it comes to their devotion to the public reading of Scripture. So one thing we're working toward here at Monument Heights, if you haven't noticed yet, is placing a greater emphasis on Scripture in the service. See, it's not unthinkable for us as a congregation that we could make our way through large segments of Scripture each year simply by publicly reading Scripture, as, by the way, Scripture tells us to do in Paul's letter to Timothy. I can't remember if it's 1st or 2nd Timothy. But attend to the public reading of Scripture is the exhortation. So we can read large segments of Scripture together in our worship service. And that's what we'll be doing. You saw some of that with First Peter today, Rupert's uh, time uh, early from the Psalms, and then also from Romans, is all a way of bringing Scripture to the forefront. And then, of course, we, we are committed to expositional preaching, preaching through passages of Scripture. So that's congregational. What are some individual practices? Well, let me go through these quickly. The very first and probably the oldest one is reading the Psalms. And I mean reading them so frequently that you are constantly talking in the language of the Psalter. One of the earliest ways Christians have found devotion, in fact one of the bedrocks of Christian devotion and private practice in religion, is to read through the Psalms day and night at least once a month. So that's a very easy pattern. By the way, if you want to find that, you can just simply look up monthly reading plan for the Psalms on Google or Book of Common Prayer, 30 Days Through the Psalter. That's a common plan. You can find it very easily. So on day one of the month, you read Psalms 1 through 5 in the morning. You read 6 through 10. They're all short in the evening. Then it might be a couple more in the morning on day two. And you see it goes through that way for 30 days. And so each month, you're coming back through the Psalms so that you're hearing them again and again and again. And they're giving expression to your prayer. You can even allow them to be your prayer. Augustine has this great, great quote. He says, the Psalms are a mirror for us. So he says this, if the psalm prays, you pray. If the psalm laments, you lament. If the psalm exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. In that way, it's like a grammar book where we learn the language of our faith by reciting it and saying it and repeating it and acting it out day after day. So that's a great practice. If you don't know where to start, start right there. Just start reading the psalms. Just read through them. And if you have questions, you can see our pastors, you can see your teachers, and, have, and, and talk about those questions. You can read large chunks of the Bible, like reading the whole thing in 90 days, or reading entire books in one sitting. Most of the books in the Bible can be read in under an hour. If you just break them up in 30-minute segments, you can read large segments at a time. And that's a great method. Reading through the Bible... Multiple times straight through isn't always the best approach, but one thing it does do is just sort of saturate you in it very quickly. You can also read the same section repeatedly. You might choose to spend an entire month reading through one book every day, that same book. Or you might spend to read a paragraph every day for 30 days. You might pick a psalm to read for 30 days. Of course, you can also memorize Scripture. And then finally, there's the idea of studying it closely and carefully, word for word. Perhaps that means learning a little bit of Greek or learning a little bit of Hebrew. 
Did you know we have resources here to help you with that? We have people both in our congregation and standing in front of you that are more than willing to introduce you in that way. It's something that we would love to see happen here. Because we can go deeper into the words of Scripture. We believe that might be one of God's callings on our congregation right now. That we can be a church that takes you a bit deeper. Now, we have a practice given to us that can provide stability. That can provide hope. That can give us an anchor. The only question is, will we allow this to become a congregational and individual habit? So that we might be shaped and conformed to the image of Christ. So that when cut, we might bleed bibline, like Charles Spurgeon once said. Will we be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the blessed word of God? That's the question. Will we allow it to shape us? Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard your word and we have heard the calling. Blessed is the one who delights on the instruction of the Lord and on that instruction meditates day and night. Give us the endurance, Lord, to meditate day and night on your word, to attend carefully to it. Give us the motivation, the grace, the desire, the taste, the hunger. For your word. Lord, as a congregation, we pray that we would be the church that is known for attending to Scripture, the church that bathes itself in Scripture, the church that is not afraid to saturate itself in Scripture. And Lord, when it comes to cutting things from our time together, may it not be the word of God that we cut. But may it be all the extraneous things that really can provide no roots, but are ultimately chaff that will be driven away. Lord, as individuals, I pray your blessing upon us that we would first see what Christ has done. We would see our ability to be united to him in his death and his resurrection. And that we would follow in his steps in hearing your word and listening carefully to both his teaching and to the entire counsel of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep and abiding commitment here at Monument Heights to your word. I pray that it would carry over into our families, into our individual lives. But Lord, I also pray that we would see the necessity of this, that there is a storm and there is a war brewing around us. And that war is not with people or politicians or culture. It is with unseen powers in the heavenly realms. And the only way to combat that is to take up our armor, to take up the sword that has been given to us, the word of God, and to attend to it diligently. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us this wartime mindset that we would not be lax, but we would be ever ready in our persistent use and meditation upon Scripture. Especially as it directs us to rely on what Christ has accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb. In his name we pray. Amen.